Equal employment opportunity disputes still occur in federal agencies. People feel wrongly discriminated against, or they really are discriminated against for the wrong reasons. Now the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has fresh advice on ways to settle EEO complaints without expensive and long litigation. We get more now from the Assistant Director of the EEO's Office of Federal Operations, Virginia Andreu. Ms. Andreu, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. Happy to be here. You're offering agencies a reissuing advice for a mechanism other than litigation that goes back almost a quarter century until a statutory change in 1999 established the idea of an offer of resolution instead of litigation. So until 99, it was pretty hard to get a offer of resolution through the EEOC because often it didn't have the relief factors that would make true resolution, correct? Yes. And so since 99, offers of resolution have had to have restitution and all of the things that maybe would be granted by the EEOC or a judge instead. Yes. So the question is, what's in the agency's incentive to offer full restitution and full resolution if they are the, in effect, defendant in the first place? Why would they want to do that? Agencies have all the time in the world to litigate. Well, the offer of resolution is a settlement mechanism. Unlike any other settlement mechanism, an offer of resolution usually costs less to the agency, the use of fewer resources than the traditional administrative or adjudicative process. Particularly, you know, the agency doesn't have to go to a hearing, like a hearing um, record, a witness. The early solution to complain through an offer of resolution can conserve the agency's resource and make more of this resource available for mission-related programs and activities. Also, might reduce the agency case flow. Because if you know that you can settle a case, why not go and settle the case? And through, you know, all this time, as you also know, the complaint process is a very long process. And, you know, you can avoid, as I, as I mentioned earlier, a court reported expert witness cost. In addition, you have to think about the morale. Complaint and morale can be enhanced like your employees when the agency management is viewed as an open-minded and cooperative in seeking to resolve disputes through settlement mechanisms. And also, it's a benefit for complainers because also saves time and expense related to the complaint process. And complainers can receive the appropriate remedies faster if the resolution is achieved at the end of the administrative process. And only, you know, only they're going to receive something if there's a finding. With the offer of resolution, they're going to receive something faster and they don't have to go through all the complicated and, and, you know, exhaustive process. Sure. So give us an example. What would be the elements in an offer of resolution that should be acceptable to both sides and to the EEOC? For example, suppose someone says, I was discriminated against because I'm female or because I'm Asian or whatever the case might be. That's the dispute. How can the agency make that right? to everybody's satisfaction? What goes into that offer? Well, the offer resolution, for example, it should be in writing. Uh, should include and explain all the possible consequences of failing to accept the offer. To be effective, must include, of course, the attorney fees, costs, and must be specified any non-monetary relief. Following your example, I think it will depend on what kind of the issue, no more what is the base. But let's, for example, say that the issue was female because it was not selected for a position or was not promoted. An offer of resolution in that particular case, it will include, for example, the agency must offer complainant that they're going to place back to the position, like it was not promotion, they're going to 
gave the promotion with all the back pay, retroactive pay, uh, you know, all the, if there was an intervening constituency, a step increase during that time that she missed, they have to provide them. The, in the offer of resolution also can provide for like, they will provide training to all the management included that they're gonna post the violation of notification in the agency and in the website. You know, it's basically everything that complainant will receive if she prevail in the case, the agency must offer to be an effective offer of resolution. You're reissuing this guidance now because in the view of the EEOC, agencies simply aren't using this pathway to resolution enough? The, the reality is, like, if I see, you know, we, we are looking at at least the last five years, we only have, like, five kind of appeals bringing this issue. However, if the case is resolved before, you know, between the agency and the complainant, the case most of the time will not come to us an appeal. So it's hard for us to see how many really are going or using the offer of resolution. So they're only going to come to us when the agency failed to comply and complain and come to us asking for us to enforce the agreement. So we only have five in the last years, but that doesn't mean that the agency are not using a lot. However, we've been able to identify that settlement agreement is the preferred method of settlement that the agencies use and complain on because and more flexibility. Like a settlement agreement, the parties can agree, and one both agree with something, it can be enforceable. Uh, it's more like flexible. They don't have to be in a specific time of the process. For example, the offer of resolution, if the person doesn't have an attorney, they only can offer when the case is assigned to an EOC administrative judge. If the person have an attorney, it can be at any time but 30 days before the hearing. So the offer of resolution have a very specific time frame and a specific time in the process need to be very specified. So settlement agreements are more flexible. As you know, the settlement agreement can offer at any time during the process can be not that specific. So that's the agencies and complainers, I think they go more with the settlement agreement than the offer of resolution. And since 1999, when this was all revised, I mean, this is a hugely process-driven situation that you've got here with EEOC. Timelines, rules, and deadlines. You mentioned five or six different statutes and regulations. There's a whole new generation of EEO officers. Sounds like there could be a special training course in simply how to do offers of resolution. Yeah, that's what we started, um, and we published the last two weeks ago, a new article in our website eoc.gov under our resource that talk all about offer of resolution. So I start to, you know, um, at least make agencies and complainants aware of this settlement mechanism. And of course, if the agency have more questions or require more training, they always can contact us and they always can send us an email to the federal sector EO at eoc.gov. Virginia Andreu is Assistant Director of the Federal Special Operations Division at the EEOC. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information, including that article, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration, 
came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama. And there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it 
would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. 
we would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.